Welcome to Enhanced Therapy Podcast, where we talk with experts in MDMA-assisted therapy. That's right, MDMA-assisted therapy. My name is Derek Davda, and today I'm speaking with Mark Hayden. Hi, Mark. Good morning, Derek. Good morning. How is Vancouver? It's beautiful. It's always beautiful. It doesn't matter if it's raining raining or snowing. It's always beautiful. But no snow right now. No, no, we just, uh, it's just being cleaned up. Um, the snow is gone and it's back to the rain. Excellent, excellent. So Mark is a, a UBC professor of public health. Mark is a director of clinical trials at Saigen. Saigen, Saigen is aspiring to be uh, one of the largest producers of psychedelic drugs. And Mark is also a former executive director of MAPS. Canada Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, the world leader in MDMA-assisted therapy. And Mark is here to talk about his book titled Manual for Psychedelic Guides. Uh, So, Mark, do you you just want to tell a bit more about yourself? Sure. um, As you know, I work for SciGen, Director of Clinical Research, and our goal... Actually, our goal is to bring LSD back, which is oh. interesting. I'm also working for a company called ClearMind Medicine, which has the goal to legalize a molecule called MEAI, 5-methoxy-2-aminoindane, which we believe would be incredibly helpful for the treatment of alcoholism. Okay. So I get to talk about psychedelics all day long. It's, um, it's a fascinating job. But you're right. I wrote this book. It's called The Manual for Psychedelic Guides. It's available on Amazon. Right. I want to, to talk about why I wrote it, because I really wrote it for two, th- two reasons. One is I know that, that there's a lot of people that want to be trained to do legal psychedelic guiding work. Yep. As psychedelics slowly become legalized, the need for those folks will increase. Yes. And there really isn't one manual that tells you how the process works. There's a lot of underground guides who write about their work, but they don't actually say what they did. They tell a lot of stories and Mm. say this happened and that happened, but they don't say how they set people up, how they guided the experience, how they debriefed, um, how they structured the room. Mm -hmm. And there's in research protocols, there's always a description of what they do, but it's not written for guides. It's written for ethics review boards. So nobody's actually just said, this is how you do the work. So I've written it both for those folks who are aspiring to be to work within the context of legal guiding as as it becomes legal. But I also wrote it for the underground because what I'm aware of is there will be increasing demand for the service the more it's in the media, the more people are talking about it, the more right. you know the psychedelics become legalized. Right. And it's going to be expensive just because of the credentialing required. And and so because it's going to be expensive, all of the underground therapists and guides will be lining up, providing the service as well. And and my goal, if I could say I have a lifetime goal, it's to legalize psychedelics. And so keeping Mm -hmm. the train on the track is important. And so it can get derailed Mm. for a number of different reasons. And one of them is because of underground guides doing it really badly and then not getting into the media. So 
the idea that this information should be widely shared appeals to me enormously. It makes it makes sense within the harm reduction within harm reduction perspective even. Uh, you know, I and I just want to make uh, make it clear uh, at the onset here that I am a psychologist and naturally I'm a proponent of uh, delivering MDMA assisted therapy within a regulated framework. And uh, you know, regulation in my mind, of course, provides maximum safety and uh, and accountability and effectiveness. We can we can discuss that, of course. Um, so I am not pro underground you know delivery of psychedelic therapies however however as you say for not point number one these therapies are not available at present and uh, and uh, a, a lot of uh, and a lot of people who are trying to uh, who, are, who want to experience psychedelics they are naturally drawn to guides uh, and sitters uh, in order to minimize their uh, the, the risks of the of psychedelic trips. Um, another point is that the only reason that these therapies are actually coming to the market is because of the very, very hard work of guides and sitters and psychedelic therapists and harm reduction activists over the many, many, many years. So we really owe it to the underground scene that these therapies will be available on the in the on the market and another point i just want to throw it in there is that the way those therapies will be looking will the shape of those therapies how those therapies will be delivered in the regulated world is very much influenced by the knowledge and and, and wisdom of the people that have been doing it in the underground scene so there's it's a very complex kind of situation the the, the evolution from the underground to the to the regulated world Yes. In fact, there, there is an interplay because re current researchers do have knowledge that is of stuff that's happened in the underground. And as they current legal researchers document, underground therapists read their documentation. So there is a, an exchange of information that goes between those two communities as both mature. And this book that I've written is it really intended to uh, solidify and amplify the knowledge that's available to both. So let's dive in. Let's, 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 dive, into, let's, let's dive into the material let's. here. So I want to start by talking about something that most people know about, but I want to just change it a little bit, which is the concept of set and setting. Right. Now, set refers to the mental state or mindset of the participant, their hopes, beliefs, fears, personality, cultural background, and expectations formed through their interactions with the world. So it's kind of what you bring. Who you are and what you bring to the experience is really important. The setting is the environment that you're in. Right. So the context of the, you know, the, the room, essentially. But the room starts with an interview room. Often the interview room is different from the, the, the experience room. So how those are set up is really important. So the, the setting should be a relaxed, comfortable, often spiritual setting, beautiful art. I'm a believer in sort of nature. So flying eagles, balancing rocks, um, beautiful forest scenes, tranquil, inspirational art, um, I think is very helpful. Mm -hmm. The occasional sort of spiritual image, um, often little meditating Buddhas or uh, mushroom rocks or, um, are, are also things that people have in, in the room. 
but but tranquility, tranquility and inspiration is kind of the, the look that you want. And recently, somebody contributed a new thought to the set setting thing, which is set setting and matrix. So the matrix is where the person is living currently. So the matrix is not referring to the movie. <clears throat> it's where somebody goes Hopefully back not. to. <laughs> If you go back to a horrible environment, if you go back to an unsupportive environment, mm -hmm. if you go back after a psychedelic experience and you're completely open, you know, you, you're, you're very vulnerable, open, and really want to connect with people in a different way, and you are mocked for the experience, that really isn't a good thing or, or worse. You're abused for the experience. So set setting and matrix all have to be really, really thoughtfully, carefully constructed. Mm -hmm. You need to be with a set. You should be have a really clear understanding of what's going to happen. You should be emotionally available. You shouldn't have a recent huge trauma going on in your life that's completely distracting you. You shouldn't have, you know, you, you should be able to introspect and be open to that process. The setting should be safe. Mm -hmm. Like the room should be safe. You should not feel any lack of safety you shouldn't um you shouldn't think that you're going to have to go off and deal with a, yes. a fire alarm or other people or, or deal with uh, other people yeah exactly exactly yeah. a janitor that's going to come in and start waving the broom at you or right. just you you should be safe and contained they talk right. about the creation of the container of safety the container means the the, the structure around you that is safe and You do. You don't leave the space. That's one of the rules we'll talk about. But you, everybody stays within this container, and you stay in there for the length of time that you have to be in there. So the container has to be safe. So it's a safe environment. The relationship with the people that you, the, the guides, the, the relationship between the guide is really, really important as well, and that also contributes to safety. So this is, this is how the whole thing has to be set up, and the. Right. The addition of the concept of matrix to this, I think, is really important because you leave the container at a certain point in time and where you go back to is important. And that's I, I really like that. I really like the addition of that third element as a, as a larger container. You know, the mm -hmm. set, setting refers to the therapy container, the, the container when, when you are in therapy and uh, you call it, you know, you call it matrix. It's the larger container because, for example, with MDMA-assisted therapy, it's uh, it's going to be currently used for PTSD. So, if you are on the one hand curing your PTSD and on the other hand going to actively PTSD uh, eliciting environments, uh, then that's counterproductive. So, I really like the addition of that third element and working that. Working that through with time, that's mm -hmm. excellent, Mark. I like that. So I want to talk a bit about the room itself. Um, in fact, in the book, I, I have some detailed specs, but the bottom line is it should be soundproof. Sometimes psychedelic work is loud, and it's supposed yeah. to be loud. You know, that's just, it's common. And, and so containing the volume is part of the process. So how do you create a soundproof room or a room where the sound doesn't matter? If you're way out in the forest somewhere, it doesn't matter. But it, often these are in urban environments. So um, how do you build a soundproof room is, is an important question. Close access to a private washroom. You really don't want to be walking down a public corridor and going to some cubicleized situation. That's really not okay. It has to be private and close. 
the lighting should be dimmable and you shouldn't be looking up at fluorescent lights. I mean, that would just be horrible. So a, a very a, a subtle lighting. So dimmable lamps are ideal. And um, as I said before, just the whole feel of the environment should be tranquil, beautiful images of nature, etc. So, uh, so the, the, the room, the, the setting is, yes. is, is an important environment to consider. Hmm. And all these, all these variables, you know what I'm going to just be trying to kind of cross-reference a little bit. You, you are doing a manual for the guides, and I just, uh, our group, we just finished uh, MAPS, four-month-long four MDMA-assisted therapy training. So in my mind, I will be cross-referencing what's in your book and what's in the training. And right now, I'm, I'm already seeing that it's very symmetrical. Yeah, I mean, I, I also uh, was involved with that training. So, I mean, I, I took, for example, Michael Metherifer's, well, you know, the, the idea of the inner healing intelligence that Stanislav Grof developed and Michael mm -hmm. Mithoffer, Michael and Andy Mithoffer, um, amplified and really refined. So the inner healing intelligence, the, the more I think about it, the more wisdom is in that very, very simple concept. Because the concept is the healing comes from the participant, not the guide. So we witness and support somebody else's inner healing. So it's similar to a cut or a bruise. You know, the mom or the father, when the child is bruised or cut, comes with the Band-Aid mm -hmm. and the support and the acknowledgement of the injury mm -hmm. and the, you know, the care. Oh, dear, let me help. But the body heals the cut of the injury. It is not the parent that heals the cut of the injury. The parent comes along and supports the healing and witnesses the healing, but doesn't do the healing. Mm -hmm. And so th the same is true for psychedelic psychotherapy. The, the healing comes from the client and the support comes from the guide. And I, I think that's really, really helpful to think that through because often I think traditional therapies the guide really gets put into a position of, I need to ask the right question or make the right intervention at this point in time. And so the, let me go back a notch for a second. Absolutely. When in talking to Michael and Annie, one of the things that they said is one of the problems is credentialing. And the more credentialing people have, the more unlearning people have to do. Often people are over-involved. When I did the Michael and Annie first round of training, we had like 20, maybe 20 therapists in the room and every once in a while, they'd be showing us a videotape of their work and they would turn it off and say, what would you do now? And we would have a spirited discussion about what we would say next. And inevitably, Michael and Annie would listen to us all and then say, you are all 100% completely wrong. <laughs> the answer is you don't say anything. You're just there for this. You just wait. You, you're compassionate. You're open-hearted. You're present. But you don't intervene at this point. No, no, there's nothing to say. So cr highly credentialed people are really good at talking and, and understanding and intervening. And often that's a problem. So witnessing somebody's inner healing intelligence is often about being there without a lot of words. And that isn't just about learning, that's also about unlearning. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
And so it's actually very different from most talk therapies that have a whole lot of back and forth. So there's a lot less of the back and forth and a lot more of just being there for people right. with open heart and, and compassion. And also the idea of, of an expert that is very embedded in our in our culture that is being kind of challenged. The idea with the inner hearing intelligence is that the number one expert is the person who has the experience, which makes complete, complete sense to me. It's ethically the right thing to do to empower a person rather than throw a bunch of advice onto the person and try to impose your 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 predetermined pre predetermined therapeutic system onto them. So you know, I mean, again, I just want to resonate uh, and mirror your 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 sentiment here, having done this training with maps, and I'm a I I'm, I've been a therapist for forever. Definitely, this the idea, the simple simple idea of inner healing intelligence and really deferring to the person's own wisdom, trying to support that as much as possible. You know, it's not just like one one sided like that. Obviously, you know, we are there yeah. to help as well and to guide mm -hmm. a little bit as well. But it has to be done with this mm -hmm. concept in mind. So I'm 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 very I'm very much pro that that concept and that mm -hmm. method for psychedelic therapies, for especially for psychedelic mm -hmm. therapies that awaken awaken that that th those inner powers and the inner inner clarity and the inner connection with yourself this that's what the psychedelics do they awaken those connections that we kind of uh lose to some extent but anyway i don't want to take over it's your interview so keep, okay. keep going i just want to reflect on what you're saying i also want to talk about some of the language that exists in popular culture that is not helpful some the concept of a bad trip mm. um in the world of psychedelic psychotherapy, there is no such thing as a bad yeah. trip. And there's, there's a lot of turbulence sometimes, a lot of emotion, a lot of you know, feelings. And so absolutely, but none of that is bad. It's just the human experience. So the idea that I had a bad trip just doesn't happen in the context of psychedelic psychotherapy that skillfully handed, mm -hmm. handled those turbulent trips, yeah. those emotional yeah. trips, there's um, anxiety that comes up, there's fear that comes up, there's all kinds of different things that are emotional, but none of that is bad. They're all opportunities for healing. And the, all the, only, opportunities for healing. the only exception is safety. And with some psychedelics like yes. LSD and, and, and mushrooms, psilocybin safe, you know, one has to be one has to be careful about safety. Mm -hmm. So I also want to, like, really what we're talking about so far is sort of the wisdom that has been derived and brought to us from the MAPS experience, but I'd also like to reflect on indigenous wisdom exactly. and include some of this in our discussion as well, because the indigenous wisdom often brings a highly ritualized structure to the process. And certainly uh, many people who are listening to this have probably done ayahuasca ceremonies. Ayahuasca ceremonies exist all over the world. So I want to just reflect on what happens during an ayahuasca ceremony. Now, it, it's curious because the, the interaction between the participants and the shaman is often not with words. In fact, it's probably a good thing that it isn't with words because often indigenous um, Peruvian 
shamanic belief systems are extremely different from Western belief systems. I mean, Western belief systems often are about, you know, I, I have this issue because I have a historical trauma. And the belief systems of the shaman is often you have this issue because of bad spirits possessing you. Mm -hmm. So those two belief systems don't work very well together. And certainly if there's a lot of words, those two belief systems tend to clash. So luckily, and wisely, there isn't a lot of words. So what happens in an ayahuasca ceremony is if somebody is experiencing emotional turbulence, the ceremonial, the ritualistic response comes to them, but it's not in words. It's in, it's in ritualistic structures, it's in music, it's in drumming, it's in blowing smoke, it's in all of these ritualistic structures that are beautiful and you feel responded to, but music is the universal language. There's no misunderstanding it. There's no lack of communication. There's no, well, that doesn't quite fit. When the, when the music is enveloping and responsive and beautiful, it's, mm -hmm. it's an amazing response to an emotional turbulent process. Mm -hmm. So really understanding the wisdom of the shamanic practices is, is quite something. Now, while rituals can be helpful and, you know, bringing sort of personal objects that have great deal of meaning and imbuing them with meaning and working with them in the process can also be ritualistic. Setting up an altar that has different objects on it that you bring, that you project your unconscious on them to engage in a process mm -hmm. is a ritualistic mm -hmm. process. Mm -hmm. Now, now, while I really appreciate and think rituals should be included in this process, I, I have a concern. So I want to just reflect on, on the concern that I have. And it came from a, a conversation I had with an ayahuasca who I really thought was very good at what he did. And he approached me and said he wanted to provide ayahuasca experiences to people with addiction concerns. And I was working in the addiction services at the time. And I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm willing to help with this. And so let's, let, let's talk about that. And he, sorry, I'm slightly distracted. Um, he, so we talked about the fact that many people that would be coming to his um, experience would have hep C or HIV. So having participated in his experience, what I noted, knew that he do is he took a bottle of ayahuasca and he poured it in a measuring cup and then he handed it to the participant. They drank from it. And then he did exactly the same with the next participant with the same cup. Mm. So what I said to him, what I brought him, mm. these little disposable paper cups. And so I said, may I suggest that what you do is you pour it into your cup and then, because it's a measuring cup and he needs to know the measurement. So then you pour it into this disposable cup and then the individual drinks from the disposable cup and then they throw it away. So at no point does anybody ever share saliva. Mm -hmm. And he looked at me and he said, no, we can't do that. That's not our way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I couldn't support him. That was it. That was, that was kind of the end of our conversation because I, I cannot participate in a process where somebody may catch HIV or hep C. And then yeah. the idea that this, this is inflexible because this is our ritual isn't very consoling to somebody who's just being caught a horrible mm -hmm. disease. Mm -hmm. So uh, rituals, I think, are beautiful, but also when they're inflexible rituals, because this is the tradition that I bring and we can't mess with our tradition right. and they can't adapt 
to circumstances and quite frankly adapt to the reality of what the needs the individual is bringing, then I, I think we have a problem. So rituals are wonderful. Inflexible rituals become problematic. Hmm. So I think the, the, there's a wisdom to understanding a whole tool bag of rituals and being able to apply them as appropriate depending on the circumstances and not get really stuck in one tradition. Sounds sounds to me like you're touching upon a really, really big, big topic right now, yeah, with this with this discussion. Mm -hmm. So uh, and and you know my my uh, podcast I focus and my work I focus on MDMA assisted therapy and and I wonder because you, you of course your your book is broader I wonder whether you whether you see huge differences in uh, um, therapy or guiding uh, for MDMA assisted therapy versus therapies like LSD versus therapies, other more traditional uh, indigenous-based therapies uh, like ayahuasca, yes. you, see, you see big differences in those, right? Well, well the, the, the molecules are different yes. and the, the different degree of internality and externality. What the heck did I just say? So when you're internal yeah. in a therapeutic process, often you are lying down with one or two therapists, hopefully two, um, beside you on either side of you, and you have headphones on where you're listening to music and you have eye shades on. So you're now internal. You're not engaged with the external world at all. When you're external, you're often sitting up, you're establishing eye contact, you're connected to the therapist and you're talking about or expressing feelings. So the, 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 the different types of molecules mm -hmm. have different degrees of internality and externality. Right. The ones that are more internal are the classics, LSD and psilocybin um, and ayahuasca, which is based on dimethyltryptamine, DMT, is also mostly internal. So those are, you know, you, essentially your ego becomes more disoriented mm -hmm. you know you're essentially your sense of self changes quite dramatically under the classical psychedelics and that means that you you really need a stronger container and interacting with people really doesn't work very mm -hmm. well at all when you're on the something like mdma your ego isn't as disoriented and so you can actually be more external and as you know having done the maps training you know often people are actually talking about talking is the keyword mm -hmm. here talking about their trauma so they they become they go internal for a while reflect on what happened they then take off the eye shades take off the headphones engage with the therapist mm -hmm. establish eye contact and really talk about what happened mm -hmm. during their traumatic experience mm -hmm. And, and work through that process and then go back internal. And they have a kind of a ebb and flow between internal and external. With something like 3-MMC, 3-methylmethcathinone, which is again an empathogen, it's more, it's, it's more external, mm. it, it's less of the internal process. There's, it's more conversational. So different medicines tend to lend themselves to different degrees right. of internal versus external. Is 3-MMC the one, mo the molecule that uh, Saigen, that you're working on with Saigen? No, 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 okay. no, 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 no. What's no, the it, name of the molecule that you, you, you're developing with Saigen? Oh, no, well, not with, with, Saigen, uh, with with the other company that you mentioned. Oh, M-E-A-I, completely different. It's one of the amino indains. And where does, does that one, what does that one do and where does that one fall? Well, this is a whole tangent. Okay. So it's, it, it, it's not, MEAI 
is described as a non a non hallucinogenic psychedelic, oh. and it's something you can add to. We're, we're proposing it as treatment for alcoholism, and you add it to alcohol, and you just stop drinking. So it's not therapy at all. So it's a completely different discussion. Okay, um, okay, it's, that's it's a completely different discussion. Okay, completely okay. different. Okay, okay. Yeah, it's, it's not not related to this Good. discussion at all. Good. Yeah. So I, I want to just read you a quote, which is the role of the guide. And it's in one sentence. Okay. And it really, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of wisdom in this one sentence. The role of the guide is to attend to the needs, physical, personal, and interpersonal, of the participants while creating an atmosphere of stability, compassion, and safety, while avoiding caretaking, fixing, labeling, mm. psychoanalysis, diagno diagnosing, or being distracted. So the role of the guide is to attend to the needs, physical, personal, and interpersonal, yeah. of the participants while creating an atmosphere of stability, mm -hmm. compassion, mm -hmm. and safety, mm -hmm. while avoiding caretaking, fixing, labeling, psychoanalysis, diagnosing, or being distracted. Mm -hmm. There's a lot in that sentence. And I think if people can work with that sentence for a while and get that, they're well on their way. Again, it all of every single thing in that sentence resonates with my experience with MAPS, MAPS mm -hmm. training, uh, MAPS MDMA mm -hmm. psychotherapy training. Mm -hmm. So I want to talk a little bit about the qualities of guides. Mm -hmm. So what, what are they bringing to this experience? A, a skillful guide has the experience, knowledge, and wisdom to understand the degree of activity required. Because as I said before, guides are often overactive. In fact, sadly, the more credentialed people are, the more overactive they are. And so one of the skills of guides is to not do all of those wonderful therapeutic things that therapists are so skilled at doing. Mm -hmm. And really, one of the things about therapists is they really want to be therapists. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when therapists really want to be therapists, then it's actually a problem because you don't want people being overactive. Again, back to that inner healing intelligence. We're there to witness and support. We're not there to be therapists. Now, there is a place for it, but often it's a lot less than people want to be, especially if they're really used to being therapists. But the ability also to stay relaxed and calm and grounded in the presence of fear, intense anxiety, and turbulent emotions. Mm -hmm. So when somebody's having a really big emotional thing, mm -hmm. it could be anxiety, could be fear, could be horror, could be disgust, could be whatever, just all those turbulent human experiences that we often have. When, when we're really in that place, we just need somebody that's grounded and cared, caring for us and being there for us and basically saying, I'm there for you, go with it. I'm supporting this, you know, I'm here for you, go with it. That, that's all we need to hear. We just need to hear you're doing great. Mm -hmm. As opposed to, you know, it's interesting because Tim Leary and um, his colleagues many, many decades ago, wrote a paper where they just said that when things went wrong in the sessions that they observed, it was often because the guide became emotional and became ungrounded, became mm. upset. Mm -hmm. the, gri the, gu the guide lost their ability to be there 
calmly. Because one of the things that happens in psychedelic space is people become incredibly intuitive. If you're the patient, you're the client, the participant, the volunteer, whatever mm -hmm. you want to call them, and you're lying down, you're incredibly intuitively aware of the emotional state of the guides or guide. And so if the guide becomes unstable, then the message that the person is getting is something is wrong. And you really don't want to be sending them that message. You really want to be sending the message that everything is okay. And you send that with your personal presence mm -hmm. intentionally and, and intensely. And so really the ability to be calm in the presence of turbulent emotions mm -hmm. is so important mm -hmm. in this process. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you lose your balance, everything goes wrong. And, and you know, I, hope, I, I think most of our listeners understand that there is a standard... Uh, a, a pretty rigid standard developing that uh, dosing sessions require two therapists within psychedelic assisted therapies, MDMA assisted therapies. And I, I, I see this standard as, as, as staying around because that's, that's the most important variable to assure safety. And it could also uh, balance out these, these situations perhaps that you're just talking about. Yeah, I also think that, you know, personal preferences to gender is important. Um, I, I think the standard that will be developed, the most common, is just a male and a female. And having the ability to project a mother on somebody and father on somebody else um, is incredibly helpful in, in this process. And uh, so, yeah, having two therapists is, is helpful for the participant to be able to work with two people in two different ways. Mm -hmm. But it's also, quite frankly, it's safer for the therapists. Mm -hmm. You know, if we want this thing to not go off the yes. rails, we need to create safety for everybody, everybody. and that includes the therapist. Very good point. Uh, and, uh, and so because that bonding can be very, very intense, it can go wrong. There's such a thing as overbonding. And the overbonding problem um, is less likely to happen when you have a colleague in the room who's watching absolutely everything. So having witnesses um, is, is helpful to keep this whole train on the Absolutely. track. Absolutely. Never mind that, you know, therapeutic touch can be uh, misinterpreted afterwards as well. So it's uh, two therapists provide yes. a lot of safety. Uh, yes. yes. So, so let's talk about that. Let's talk about how you set people up for the experience. Because there are rules. So let's talk about the rules. So... The, the first rule is nobody leaves the space and the space is defined and the space can be, you know, the, the room that the therapy is in, uh, but it can also be, you know, the washroom, obviously, and maybe there's another room that has plants in it and a garden, but whatever you define the space as being, the first rule is don't leave the space. Everybody stays in the space until it ain't over till it's over. And it's over when you can talk about it in retrospect. When you say, wow, that was interesting. Mm -hmm. The moment you introduce the word was is you're no longer in the space. So you're talking about in retrospect. Mm -hmm. So nobody leaves the space is rule number one. Rule number two is um, nobody gets hurt. No objects get broken. No fists get swung. You know, there's, there's no, nothing. There's no harm done in this space. And rule number three is there's no sexual touching. So be explicit, no sexual touching. So then before the whole thing happens, you talk about what those three rules. And so what is sexual touching? So you have an open discussion. And so it's really, really clear because often people do do things like body work. You know, if some, if trauma 
often is manifested in the body and a skilled therapist will say, you know, okay, and that center part of your back seems to be incredibly vibrating and sore right now. I'm going to put some pressure on it. And, and that's, it's called body work mm -hmm. and body work is, is very common and works really well. And it's a very, it's a healing modality that is nonverbal, which is a good thing. And, and so understanding non-sexual touching, holding somebody's hand, even having that discussion is holding somebody's hand in a turbulent process. Is that sexual or non-sexual? And clarity hopefully will be achieved that that's a non-sexual touching. So really having that discussion in advance, so it's very, very clear as to what is sexual touching and what is non-sexual touching and getting permission that non-sexual touching is part of the process. And, but you have to be clear. And when that boundary got crossed, Everybody's got and, and and I can tell you, Mark, that right now, if if uh, any mainstream therapists are listening to us, they they're kind of cringing. The topic of touch is such a complex topic. First of all, we most therapists never mainstream therapists never use touch at all. So yes. so that's you know that's that that creates, of course, a lot of safety in, for clients and for but it also within these therapies. Uh, I don't want to go too far into the topic of touch and all that, but I just want to flag that this is a very big topic, very important topic, and a topic that has to be explicitly discussed ahead with the informed yes. consent and, 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 and understood uh, before those dosing sessions, yes. Yes. I mean, let's, let, let's talk about hand-holding, because hand-holding hand is touch. Yes. Hand-holding is non-sexual touch. Mm -hmm. and, and it's very common. You know, when somebody's really feeling turbulent and very connected to a therapist, often having that connection demonstrated through holding hands. And it has to be completely appropriate for the person. So even how you would do that is an important skill because you don't reach out and grab somebody's hand. You know, that's, that's uh, quite frankly too intrusive. But if you have, if you've talked about it in advance and you worked with somebody, you have to establish trust and you have to have talked about non-sexual touching in advance. And so holding out one's hand to make it available for somebody else to reach out to and touch is, is important as part of the process. So uh, being, yeah, being very, very careful and thoughtful about this um, is, is a really, it's an important part. And, and it's, it's one of the rules. So the rules have to be discussed in advance. And there's also, al always a risk to just say a few little things about things so big, like we're talking about touch. So let's just acknowledge that we're not covering this topic in any, any depth. We're just kind of pointing to the topic, the same that we did when we're pointing to the topic of indigenous, uh, indigenous practices. We just pointed to the topic. We have absolutely no time to discuss it. And these topics are so huge. And there has been so much time spent, for example, on touch in MAPS training that just to make sure, you know, that we, uh, we by no means are exhausting any of those topics. Yes. So I, I want to kind of tangent for a second and talk about essentially the relationship between the two therapists. Because I, I think Michael and Annie Mithoffer, mm -hmm. the MAPS, the lead MAPS therapists are fabulous. Yes. And in fact, to be honest with you, I only disagree with them on one thing. And I think it's, it's kind of reflective and it might be an interesting thing to talk about. Because Michael and Annie Mithoffer met Bruce and Marcella. And so their two married couples got together. Mm. And from their discussions and their work flowed the whole MAPS training. 
And so they talk a lot about a special relationship and the special relationship between the two therapists. And so working with somebody that you really, really know well and maybe even are married to and, um, and have that you know, beautiful dynamic that you flow easily back and forth is sort of very apparent when you watch Michael and Annie and Bruce and Marcella. Now, I came from a different background. So my background was working in the context of an addictions team. And my deal with my staff was I worked with everybody, you know, and everybody worked with everybody. And we all ran groups together and I would run groups with everybody. There were no special relationships. In fact, you know, if there became a special relationship on my team, I actually had a problem with that because I assumed that everybody could work with everybody and there was no special relationships. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a pro and a con here. So the advantage of special relationships is if you really get to do the dance with somebody that really is skillful, it's a good thing. But, um, but the, the problem with special relationships is, first of all, your learning curve flattens. The more you work with different people, the more you learn mm -hmm. different things. Mm -hmm. So that if more people that you're involved with um, is, is better, I think, because I certainly learned all kinds of things from different staff members. And so you're not just doing one routine all the time. You're actually learning broader skills with no special relationship. But also in terms of accountability. I mean, certainly I've watched things go wrong. And I've watched things go wrong with a special relationship. If somebody starts to behave in a way that is unethical or inappropriate, and it's a special relationship, the other person might not hold them accountable in the same way you're just part of a team and there's no special relationship. That person will be held accountable pretty darn quickly if they do anything wrong. So special relationships actually can become problematic. So my own recommendation is no special relationships. I, I recommend teams and and everybody in the team should be able to work with everybody else. And yeah, you may feel more comfortable with one person or more comfortable with another, but that's part of the challenge and you need to work on that. And so have it ex explicitly understanding that you need to work on your relationship with many staff members on the team, I, I think is, is more helpful as a way of doing business than, uh, mm. than having just one person that you only ever work mm. with. Yeah, I, I, I could, I, there was nobody I, I could not work with in, mm -hmm. on my team. It was just the deal. So if you showed up on my team, I would work with you, period. Mm -hmm. and, and I never would think about, you know, the fact that, you know, I, I didn't want to work with them because they, I didn't have a special relationship with them. It was just mm -hmm. everybody works with everybody and, and, and I would learn yeah. stuff with everybody. I hear your point about learning, learning new things from new people and, and always being a little bit more developing more fluid fluidity and flexibility that way yeah mm -hmm. i also want to talk about projection because we're talking about you know the couple <laughs> the the two therapists and i want to talk about what happens with psychedelic work because when we are under the influence of a psychedelic what happens is we project our unconscious mind on the people around mm. us so when we're in the role of a therapist, we become the mother, the father, the mm -hmm. abuser of the person who's lying down. Yeah. So they will come at us with their unconscious material and then they will you know, love us or hate us or whatever is going on for them that has nothing to do with us, mm -hmm. absolutely nothing. Mm -hmm. And so, we need to be really, really understanding that they are projecting their unconscious material on us and it's nothing to do with us. Mm -hmm. 
and and it's okay. In fact, it's part of the, health, the healing process. And it may be pretty intense at time what comes at us, like incredibly intense. And we need to not take it personally, mm -hmm. you know, and just understand this is a normal part of the therapeutic process. In fact, it's really helpful to have discussed it in advance mm -hmm. Because if, if, you, if you're, again, the subject or the client or the participant, and suddenly you see your, your person who you actually really trust as being your abuser and you start yelling at them, and then later on, it will have your, as you're winding down, you might feel bad about it. And um, so having set that up in advance and understanding that projection process is actually really important. So uh, it's, it's really helpful to have had the discussion about either transference or projection, mm -hmm. as different words mm -hmm. that are used out there. But um, it can be very challenging for a guy who doesn't understand it. And so really work, and then once you understand it, you can actually work with it quite consciously. So, you know, once, you know, this is stuff you all set up in advance, but for example, how you work with eye contact can elicit um, this projection process. Like if you get within about, you know, eight inches, put your nose eight inches apart and you do what's called eye gazing and you look at somebody directly in the eye, that's a very intense thing to do that will elicit material from the person. Mm -hmm. And that, that's kind of the opposite of what's doing, a, what I call doing a soft gaze where you actually don't establish eye contact at all. You just look down a little bit slightly away from the person. Because eye, eye contact is a very powerful thing, and it's, it's deeply rooted in our brains. Mm. You know, if you think about, you know, where we come from as, you know, we evolved from animals. Animals, eye contact between predator and prey um, is a very strong experience. So all, all animals understand what eye contact means. You know, it's, it's a very intense thing that happens, and you're either got it or you don't. Yeah. And so working with this very, very intense communication, it, you, you have to understand where that can take someone. Mm -hmm. And so you know, just understanding the little details. You, some people would think, well, I'm just looking at them. Mm -hmm. No, you're establishing eye contact and that's meaningful in this space. Or you're not establishing mm -hmm. eye contact and that is meaningful. So, so what could be considered to be very, very subtle things aren't subtle and, you, and working with them intentionally um, is really part of the uh, the psychedelic process. Mark, you're very good at 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 uh, opening up these big areas of discussion. That's really nice. This, you know, the projection, transfers, counter transfers, eye contact, the quality of you know presence. This is uh, another another huge topic, and of which we of course don't have. Uh, but it's nice to to just touch upon it. Very important. Mm -hmm. Very 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 important. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. I'd like to reflect on a paper that was written by Janice Phelps. Janice Phelps mm. uh, was the director of CIIS, California Institute for Integral Studies, and she wrote a paper called The Six Core Competencies of Psychedelic Psychotherapists. And it's, uh, th there's a lot of wisdom in the six, so I'd like to kind of reflect yeah. on something that she brings to us, and um, I elaborate on them in the book. So the first one is empathetic abiding presence. So let's, let's think about what, what she means by that. Empathetic means I am able to connect with you and understand where you are at. Mm -hmm. Empathy means I can feel your feelings, I can think your thoughts, I understand what it's like to be you at this point in time. 
Abiding means I can do that for a long period of time. I can stay in that place. And then presence means calm, compassionate ability to be with people. So empathetic abiding presence, being able to be calm, compassionate, and connected and understanding for a long period of time. Wow. Three words, big words. The second one is trust enhancement. So what does that actually mean? It means I need to know as the client or the participant, I need to know that you are not going to hurt me in any way at all, that you will protect me and you will protect my vulnerabilities. So if I expose myself, you know, my feelings, my hurts, my pain, my trauma, my, my anxiety, if you, if, you, if you see my anxiety, it will be okay. In fact, you will support that. So trust enhancement and trust starts the moment you the moment you meet somebody. In fact, even sometimes it's meeting people over mm -hmm. a phone call. So 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 in person or not in person, trust begins at the very moment of first contact. Mm -hmm. And 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 we form opinions about people in seconds. And so trust enhancement is actually really really important. You you and it begins at the beginning. So how you work, how you're dressed, how you move, how you how you approach somebody, how you interact with them, how you create safety right from the very beginning, and then build on that through the process. So actually talking about the process of trust as you're prepping people, you don't just meet somebody and offer them a psychedelic, you prepare them. And you prepare them through the process of building trust. So talking about trust as the process unfolds and working with how trust manifests in the relationship is actually really important. So being explicit, you're both doing the trusting thing and building trust, but you're also talking about trust in a way that really helps. So you really understand whether or not you are successfully building a trusting relationship. The third one is, is spiritual intelligence. So understanding that sometimes it depends on the medicine that people are more with the classics, LSD and psilocybin, DMT and mescaline. So those ones tend to be, at the right dosages, a more spiritual experience, more than MDMA or 3MMC mm. or MDA. So, so understanding when the, the language that people use when they're having spiritual experiences, things like um, oceanic boundlessness and all is one. You know, what does that actually mean? What is the experience of having that? And having been there before is actually quite helpful. Another one is self-awareness and ethical integrity. We, as therapists, get triggered. So we're human. Surprise, surprise. And so we have our own histories that we bring to the process. When somebody's yelling at us for being their mother, father, or abuser, or whatever, we will be triggered internally. And so we need to understand that, have a little self-compassion, be able to work that through pretty darn quickly and come back to being compassionate, abiding presence. So having self-awareness and the ability to understand where our places of comfort and discomfort are and being able to work with that. And when we have a good therapeutic team with one of our colleagues, one of our team members, we can actually talk about that as to where what were our difficult places in this whole process. So being able to be self-aware and self-disclosing as is appropriate to colleagues is is part of the uh, is part of the learning of being a psychedelic psychotherapist. Having ethical integrity is another one. So keeping our own boundaries really, really clear. 
proficiency in complementary techniques. So, you know, what, what fits? Body work, for example, is really helpful. And then knowledge of the medicines, understanding what medicine I've just given this person, mm -hmm. how long it lasts, when it peaks, when it resides, and how it works is, is an important mm -hmm. part of the process. So uh, there's a lot of wisdom in those six mm -hmm. core competencies. Mm -hmm. Sounds good. Sounds good, Mark. By the way, the book Manual for Psychedelic Guides is available on uh, Amazon. I have the book right here, Mark. But one of the, the curious things about the book, um, I think it's a little unusual is what I do, is I keep updating it. Oh. Um, people throw thoughts at me and I think, ah, oh, it's so important, mm. I have to put in the book. And so if I have a thought, because it's published on Amazon, it's easy to update mm. it. You know, I, I just basically add a few more thoughts and then I throw mm. it up in Amazon. So it, it's an evolving work. That's great. It looks to me like we actually might be up for a, a revolution in mental health treatment and not only of PTSD with MDMA-assisted therapy, but we have uh, treatment-resistant depression with psilocybin. We have people working on eating disorders, which are extremely difficult to treat, extremely difficult to treat. There's a lot of promise in, in these therapies, and, uh, and, and the effect sizes are not just slightly bigger than what you get from the best established treatments at this point. So what do you think are the risks for, for, the, for, for the field? What do, you, what, what do we have to like really be careful about? Well, one of the risks is overselling us. So yeah. we're, all, we're all pretty excited yes. by what's happening. Yes. But the truth of the matter is if we're overexcited and that's yes. the only message that we share yes. and things don't work as well as we have predicted, then we have shot ourselves right, in the foot. Right. So cautious optimism, I think, is an appropriate way of approaching this because they aren't, they aren't panaceas. They aren't um, one, one pill will fix everything. And the wild excitement, I think, is actually a vulnerability to the community as well because we set people up for huge expectations right. and therefore disappointment. There so, so, so I think saying it's a therapeutic tool that has to be used wisely and we're cautiously optimistic that it can be used well, um, I, I think is the right language and the right approach. And being that's why I, I see my presentations are often cautiously optimistic and, and quite frankly, cautionary as well. That's why mm -hmm. I talk about the problems. You know, it's, I don't just talk about how wildly exciting this whole field is. No, I don't do that. I, I'm very cautious. And, and I think it's important to have that as an approach. Or again, this thing will go off the rails. Mm -hmm. that's, that's a very good point, very good point. What, uh, what's uh, ideally, what would you like to see in the, in the, la in the mm -hmm. next two years? What do you, what, what do you want to see, Mark? Well, I have a longer view than just two uh -huh. years, but I would like to see psychedelics become widely available and used skillfully and commonly in a variety of them. 3-MMC, MDMA, LSD, psilocybin are just examples for a wide variety of treatments and used within the... I'm, I'm so clear that the context of teams is one of the best ways of protecting this mm. medicine. If, if they're used within the context of teams and mm. people are held accountable, I mean... Colleges tend to deal with smoking gun issues, but they don't, they deal with horrible and abusive practice, but they don't tend to deal with bad practice. Mm. Colleagues deal with bad practice. So having people in the relationship of teams talking to each other and watching each other work 
is one of the best ways, it may be the best way of holding everybody accountable and keeping this thing on the track. So people not working alone and working with their teams yep. and having many people involved, I think is, is really, really important for both skill development and accountability. True accountability. Excellent. Mark Hayden, would you like to plug some of your whatever, whatever else you need to plug? Nah, it's, it's good. good. Um, it, thank, thank you. I appreciate, I appreciate your interest in this important topic. Yes. Derek, I, thank you. Thank you for your leadership. Yeah.